here and did it. I know we had a Paris marathon runner last week and uh, Margot can actually now walk, which is a good thing. I saw it at the beginning of the week, it looked quite painful. But, you know, when you run a marathon, you don't, you don't just turn up at the start line, do you? Like, dress like this or as you are now and just say, all right, I'll start running. You don't do that, do you? You run for a reason, probably, you know, for in view of something. That could be just, I want to beat my personal best time or I want to accomplish a fitness objective, which I set myself probably on January the 1st. Um, you know, but you also, you run for a cause, a reason, and many people do it in view of something, a really good cause, like a charity, that kind of thing. And you can't just turn up kind of unprepared for the gruelling hours ahead of you. You kind of offer yourselves completely, don't you, to the task that is ahead. You get the right shoes, you get some kind of appropriate clothing, you make sure that you're ready physically and probably mentally too for a marathon. And you give, your, give yourself completely, every ounce of energy is expended when you do the 26 point whatever it is, miles. There is a run ahead for every Christian. That is, life before we meet God face to face in glory. And I guess Romans 12, verse 1 to 2, is that pivotal point in Romans. It's a, in a sense, it's, it's like a bullet point of encouragement and truth that we need as we run the race to glory. Now, imagine you had a friend running uh, the, the London Marathon. You, you decide you want to go and support them. You pick a, you pick a place where they're going to, I'm really going to be flagging at mile 19, wherever it is. And you pick that place and... You work out, you know, at that moment where they're feeling at their worst, at their most exhausted, when they're really, really struggling, you'll have this short, brief moment to call out to them in the marathon something, something really encouraging, something to keep going, whatever it may be. And you see them approach, they run past you, and you yell it out, there we go. Well, I guess Romans 12 is a bit like that. Romans 12, verse 1 to 2. That is, it, it encompasses everything that we need to hear as we run this race. Oh, it's a much greater race with a much greater end, even than the mile. Essentially, we could shout this to each other. Uh, it would work. I mean, it's a bit, that would be a little bit strange. You don't panic. I'm not going to ask anyone to do that right now. Let's take it, if you like, slow-mo. Uh, and we're going to go through it. Uh, kind of clause by clause in these just couple of verses. So do be prepared. This is totally awesome. Uh, I've just been looking at this the whole uh, this last week. Martin Lloyd Jones, just so you know, the great preacher of the last century, Welsh preacher, ended up in Westminster Chapel. He did ten sermons on these two verses alone. Don't panic. We'll be we'll be finished fairly soon. So you're all right. I have read every one though, and they're quite brilliant. Now let's dive in though. Um, as we look at the beginning of this verse, it's really interesting. It begins with that word, therefore, which, you know, in a very childlike way, it's always there for a reason, isn't it? Paul has come to the end of 11 chapters of his magnificent letter to the church in Rome, spelling out the gospel verse by verse. That is, the gospel is the, that good news of who Jesus Christ is, what he's achieved for those with faith, what he's achieved through his life, death, and resurrection. And chapters 1 to 11, like this incomparable kind of survey of God's truth, but mainly his mercy, as we see. And that is why chapter 12 begins, it's kind of introductory point, therefore in view of God's mercy. Go back one, I think we're there. There we are. Therefore in view of God's mercy. 
What he's saying there is that if you believe chapters 1 to 11, if you believe the truth of the Christian gospel, Paul is saying if, if you really understand the mercy of God, now you will live like this, he's about to say. And chapters 12 to 16 kind of map that out for us. So we run the Christian race, if you like, in view of something. That is, it transforms us, defines us, but it also motivates us. And the great motivation is the mercy of God. The great definition of our lives is the mercy of God. But what is it? What is that mercy of God? I think we're just going to stick on that first slide, if that's okay, Matt. Let's go back one, and we'll stay there. Now sit back and relax, and I'll tell you when to go. There we go. All I can see is everyone's eyes going, what? Oh, we're, yeah, we're, we're on that one. Okay, we'll stay there. But what is the mercy of God? Never give a finance here, any jobs like this. Just, okay, banking, stick with it, mate. You're fine. Um, which is a good thing. It's a great thing. Pause for the record there. Anyway. Paul is just, what is the mercy of God? Paul spent 11 chapters, if you like, mapping that out. And now, I'm going to run through this, make note of them if you want to, but you know this, many of you do, you've studied Romans before. Chapter 1, verse 16, 17, the mercy of God comes through that gospel, which has been proclaimed from the prophets beforehand, and it's a powerful message which brings salvation to all who would believe. Chapter 1, 16 and 17, how? Here's verse 16, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. Chapter 2, the mercy of God there is shown as a means to avoid God's just and right judgment. Chapter 3, the mercy of God is shown as in, in his love. Chapter 3, verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That is to make us one with God. That is... Uh, um, through the shedding of his blood, and is received by faith. Chapter 4, the mercy of God is shown in, uh, that is it, um, it's shown through the crediting of righteousness. That is that we don't then have to earn our way to heaven. Chapter 5, the mercy of God is kind of, is kind of planted on the fact that we are then justified through that faith. That legal word justified is to say, you are legally now right with God through faith. As a result, chapter 5, verse 1, you can have peace with God. Our sins are forgiven. They are covered halfway through chapter 5, through Jesus' atoning death. Chapter 6, the mercy of God is shown in new life that Christians can enjoy. A freedom, which Paul maps out. Chapter 7, Christians have died to the power of the law. It's mercy, mercy the whole way through. Chapter 8, Christians now have the Spirit. There's a promise that there's no condemnation for those who have faith in Christ. And there's no separation. And we stand more than conquerors in Christ's death. It's all mercy. Chapter 9, Christians are children of God. Mercy again. Chapter 10, Christians are those who made righteous by faith. Whatever the background. Whatever their history. All we need is faith. And chapter 10 spells out, we'll never be put to shame as a result. We're saved. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Chapter 11, in God's kindness, we've been grafted into his family. We're one of his children. It's mercy, mercy, mercy. And Paul ends chapter 11, look at it if you can, verse 33 to 36, with this essentially a poetic song. How amazing is God's mercy. Verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? 
who has ever given to God, that God should repay him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's no small word is it, therefore, in view of God's mercy. Have you heard enough mercy and kindness from God in chapters 1 to 11? Enough to run this race of the Christian life? See, God has not only just motivated us, he has utterly and completely prepared us and given us everything we need for the race that lies ahead. The second thing I want to note, and it's on there, Matt, don't panic, leave there, brothers uh, and sisters as well. Um, he, the way he addresses the church in Rome is really interesting here, isn't it? Remember who he is. He is an apostle appointed and commissioned by Christ himself. He's educated. He's probably from a very wealthy background. He has a physical presence that is impressive to those around us, we see in the book of Acts. Yet despite that, he addresses this whole church as brothers. In the new NLV, new translation, it says brothers and sisters. In the old translation, which I remember, it's brethren. Paul address, is addressing here men and women of the church. Now, the important thing that I think to note though is that Paul doesn't speak down to them at all. He puts himself, if you like, on the, on the level with them. Despite his intellectual stature, they're brethren, they're brothers. Sisters, despite his physical stature, they're brethren. Despite his privileged upbringing, oh, they're just they're brothers and sisters. But despite his age and his maturity, because most of the early church were quite young at this stage, brethren. Despite his apostolic nature and commission, brethren. They are his brothers. And sisters, and it's really interesting. I apply this to myself now and work it out for yourselves. But interestingly, as a dad, my boys are my brothers in Christ as they confessed him as Lord and Saviour. Of course, I'm still their dad and I still have all those duties to love and protect them and to discipline them as I ought to as a father. But they are my brothers in Christ. Which helps me not exploit my position of authority. It's so helpful to see that in Christ there's this utter equality, isn't there? Because yeah, all of us are recipients of mercy. All of us were once deserving of God's right and just judgment. But all of us need Christ and the mercy of Christ and his spirit. And Paul, this great apostle, the, the great missioner to the Gentile world, writes to his church that he loved in Rome and he calls them Brethren, brothers, sisters. I guess there's a, just a couple of points of application, if I can, just to, just to help us think. You know, maybe you're in a position of leadership in this church. You know, maybe you're a home group leader, a Sunday school leader. How do you speak to your group? If you've been a, a Christian in a number of years, how do you speak to the folks, you know, that maybe have come along and they're, they're either investigating the Christian faith or, you know, the young Christians? But a lot of application there, I think, isn't it? The gospel of mercy pulls us to address one another as brothers and sisters if we're Christians. But here we get to our next point. Matt, brilliant, well done. Um, that is, in view of God's mercy, Christians, what are we to do? We're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. 
Look at that verse again with me, if you can. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, we've done that bit, in view of God's mercy, we've done that bit, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. See, if you've really understood the gospel, the mercy of God in chapters 1 to 11 of, of Romans, he's saying you will have responded and you will live like this. Paul is urging his brothers and sisters, literally here, this living sacrifice word actually is a, literally a living death, a living killing. It's purposely kind of a, a paradox here. It's an odd little phrase. But let's clear up one thing, just the end, uh, the first part of that, if I possibly can. That is, it says, you are to offer your body. That's interesting, that, in that culture, because in the Greek and the kind of Roman culture, the body was seen as a, a kind of a, a slightly more disposable entity. Now, you kind of got it for this life, but, uh, you know, the afterlife, it was considered in the Greco-Roman culture, it was just kind of, oh, it was a spiritual thing. Therefore, Roman Greek culture uh, was awash with kind of indulgence. Similarly, in many Eastern religions, the body there is just considered, well, it's just an illusion, isn't it? Buddhists, Hindus, and so on. And therefore, much, not much is done to either restrain or maintain the body. Now, if you remember back a few weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 65, didn't we? We looked at the new heavens and new earth. We know that the body is, is restored, renewed. There's continuity between this life and the next in the physical realm. And as we'll look next week, as James will take us through in Luke 24, we see that in Christ too, don't we? In his resurrected form, there's continuity in the physical form. So you see, what he's saying by that is the body matters before God. Paul makes that strenuously point, uh, that point very strenuously in 1 Corinthians 6, doesn't he? In the context of sexual sin, actually. And the body, he says there, the body matters. It's, it's not to be used and abused as your urges dictate. Because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, it's, it's the home of God's spirit. A temple, no less, he describes it as. Given for sacrificial worship of God's. So you see, he's saying here with this little phrase, of your bodies, in view of God's mercy, offer everything, all of yourself, to God. And that's why the body is pictured there. God is not satisfied with a kind of a partial offering of who you are. His mercy has given us everything. So in response, we're to offer everything. But how? Let's go back to that other phrase. Matt, we're all right. We'll stay there. No, go back. There we go. We're as a living sacrifice. As I said, it's a living death. Let's think about the sacrifices, though, if we can, uh, for a moment. Uh, obviously, that takes us back to the Old Testament. Um, and, but how is then, if you like, the Christian life uh, to be a living sacrifice? I, I think it's... it's a, Paul's point is, it's a bit like the old stuff, but it's not like the old stuff. There's a kind of similarity, but there's a, it's not similar in many other ways. So it's not similar to the old sacrificial system, because the old sacrifices, well, most obviously, they were just quite bloody, weren't they? You would find an animal, you would buy it as you walked into the temple, a goat, a sheep, depending on your wealth and depending on your sin, it would be a small dove or it would be a bigger animal, depending on who you were. And what you'd done. And that animal would be taken then by the priest and killed as an act of atonement for the sin of the people. But why? Well, 
Mainly because our rebellion against God, our sin, as the Bible describes it, must be punished. If, if God is to remain just, he cannot ignore. So bloody sacrifices were, were necessary as they were, as Romans 3 describes, they're propitiations. That is, they were symbolically taking on themselves all the punishment that you deserved to get right. And so that the, the animal was sacrificed in the place of you. But the Christian sacrifice is not bloody, very thankfully. That is mainly because our sacrifice is not an atoning sacrifice. So we cannot say to God, well, I'm going to live like this this week, okay, God? I'm going I'm to do everything I can to please you in the workplace, at home, in my relationships. And as a result, God, you can accept me for who I am and what I've done and take me to heaven. No. In Jesus dying on the cross, there is a once for all, Hebrews describes it, a once for all atoning sacrifice that ends all the guilt offerings, all the sin offerings of the old sacrificial system. Our living sacrifice of Romans 12 is simply an offering in response to that once for all sacrifice. It's a response of gratitude, a response of praise. So you see, the Christian living sacrifice, the Christian life, is not like the old sacrificial system because they were offered once for, for, for sin at that moment. You kill an animal, you make it a, a sacrificial, uh, atoning, uh, symbolically atoning for your sin. But you see, the difference is the living sacrifice of the Christian life is never over. Old Testament, you killed it, done. Living sacrifice, you keep on offering. One scholar put it this way. I thought it was quite interesting. The trouble with the living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. See, the old sacrifice, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were killed, then they were burnt, it was done. But the living sacrifice that the Christian life ought to be is every hour, every moment, the whole of our lives. One person I was reading just said, Lloyd-Jones actually said, it's just it's to be deliberately consciously, continually offering ourselves to God. So, you see, the living sacrifice, they're not like the Old Testament sacrifice, but, 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 but Paul would never use that phrase, sacrifice, if he wasn't trying or killing there or death, if something didn't need to be put to death. Not only is he pointing back to Christ's sacrifice that brings us uh, life, but he must be saying that there must be something of the Christian life that as you offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, that must involve a kind of death, a sort of death. It must involve sacrifice. So what are we to kill, if you like, as Christians as we live our lives? We've just been looking at Colossians 3 over the last week with these youth uh, that I mentioned and you know Colossians 3, verse 5 onwards, is all they put to death, therefore, all of those things. But if I were to summarise all of that in a kind of catch-all statement, it would be, ultimately, we've got to kill that kind of thought of our minds, or our own hearts and culture, that believes that we've got the right to choose the way that we live. That we've got the right to define how we should live. Well, it's very extreme, isn't it? But in the essence, that is the Christian life. To, to be a Christian is to put to death the, 
that you know best how to live your life. And you might ask, well, why is that a sacrifice? I would suggest maybe you're better than me, but to me, as a pretty sinful guy, it, it means it feels like a death. To say to God, you know how I should live and think in every area of my life. You know better. That feels like a death to me. It's a massacre of my identity. It's a kind of the genocide of self, one, one commentator put it. it. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, a living death. But why? Well, because on the other side of this sacrifice, you see, and death, there is life. It's, it's a sacrifice that leads to life eternal. But if, there, if you're anything like me, there will be times when offering yourself in this way as a living sacrifice, you just think this is way too much. And if you're anything like me, again, you'll start bargaining with God. Maybe you do this, maybe you don't. You'd say something like this, I'll do that for you, God, if you give me this. Oh, you, you know, okay, I'm okay this month to, to kind of serve you, God, in, with all of my heart, but only, maybe not all, maybe let's keep it at 90% because I want to keep this bit back for myself. No, a living sacrifice says, no, God, it's everything. Absolutely everything. And you may not even know, and I think this is a thing I found probably the hardest this week I've been looking at this. You may not even know when you're holding things back from God. Because sometimes it's hard to discern, isn't it? One person I was just reading just said, why don't you test yourself? Why don't you think of the thing that is perhaps most precious to you that wouldn't be against God's command? So I'm not thinking get rid of your wife or anything like that. But, you know, things, material things, let's say, let's say car and house and whatever it may be. If there's any inclination in your heart to say, I'm not willing to let that go, then you're holding on to it. But you will never let go of your life uh, to a sovereign God and his will unless you really trust him, will you? Unless you absolutely love him. So you have to be utterly convinced, and I guess that's why you, you look at the, the Bible continually and remind yourself you have to be utterly convinced that he loves you. And he loves you more than you will ever love yourself. And he's, he's so wise that he even knows best for you in every area of your life. You may not truly understand it the whole time. You may not even truly like it the whole time. But in offering yourself, you're saying, you know best. You love me more. A living sacrifice simply says, God, I'm yours. And it, there is a warning, and I found this really helpful. Um, as I was reading this week, it just said... If you say, God, I'll sacrifice, if, that kind of bargaining chip that you want to place, I'll sacrifice, I'll be the living sacrifice, but if, whatever that if is, then that's what you're really sacrificing for and not God. That is, what are you holding back from God right now? What are you saying? I'm not willing to relinquish the control over that part of my life. What is it? great old hymn I used to sing as a child, all to Jesus I surrender, all to thee I freely give. 
That's what we need to do. We need to let go. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Well, this is your spiritual act of worship. Matt, brilliant. What do you worship? It's always a good question to ask. Because we're all living for something. We all, whether we're Christians or not, we're all worshipping and sacrificing ourselves towards something. Whether we like it or not. The sad irony, I think, of our culture, many people around us, many of my friends, they think, they look at me and they say, you're a Christian. You, you just how suppressed. You have no freedom whatsoever. I'm the one with great freedom. Look at me. I can do whatever I like. Not at all. If you live for your career, you're slavishly sacrificing the altar of your career. If you live for your family and friends and that's what defines you most of all, then you're dutifully and lovingly sacrificing them and yourself on the altar of intimacy and relationships. We are all sacrificing for something. None of us are free in that sense. Oh, some of you... uh, I was reading Tim Keller on this, and he was really helpful. He said, some of you might say, and I I quote, he said, I'm totally independent. I don't need God. I don't want God. I worship nothing. I sacrifice to nothing. And his warning was this. You will die lonely, and you will be a sacrifice on the altar of your own independence. And you're serving your own independence, and it will flay you. We are all going to have to sacrifice to something, give our lives for something. I guess the question here is, which are you going to trust? Is it yourself or God? Only God is infinitely wise and infinitely kind and loving and merciful, as he spent 11 chapters mapping out of Romans. He's demonstrated it again and again, both in our lives, in our church, but most of all and objectively in his word, the Bible. I guess we just need to remind ourselves of that, don't we? Again and again and again, daily, every morning as we wake up. That's why we call them devotions, because we're redevoting ourselves to the one who is infinitely loving, kind and merciful. So what is the spiritual act of worship? Or It's interesting that the new NIV, the, the one uh, that was printed a few years ago, more literally translates uh, that spiritual act of worship as a true and proper worship. It's a more accurate translation, actually. But the reason in our translation it's described as a spiritual act of worship is, is because I think it's empowered and led by the Spirit. In God's mercy, in Romans 8 actually, uh, God's spirit has given to the Christian it to, to lead and guide us, to offer ourselves appropriately, if you like. The spirit works, as we prayed earlier on, to work through that word, God's word, the Bible, to show us how to be a living sacrifice. But it's been translated, interesting, as true and proper worship in the new translation. Um, true, because it's rooted in the objective truth of the gospel. And proper, because it's the appropriate response before God in the giving of his son. So to summarise that, we're all going to be worshipping something, whether we like it or not. But only one worship, that which is true and proper, that which is spirit-led and empowered, only that worship will... (laughs) will bring us ultimate joy and satisfaction. 
But more than that, it also gives us assurance as we've been given eternal life through the mercy of God in in the sacrifice of his son. So to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, point one, point two, this is your spiritual act of worship. Matt, point three, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Next little phrase. You will know many of your friends. They're lovely people. We enjoy going out for dinner with them. We enjoy going for drinks with them. We spend a lot of time with them. They do lots of non-Christians that we know do a lot of good things, don't they? They offer themselves. Since some of the language here could be appropriate of them. They offer themselves for good things, good causes. But what is their motive? Could it be tradition? Like our family, we've always done that kind of thing. We've always helped out in the local hospital. We've always done that those kind of ways. That may be the case. Oh, you'll know, for some of our, my non-Christian friends, it's, it's kind of a guilt appeasement. I, I did that, so I'm going to do that. And it kind of weighs it up in the balance in the end. Maybe they do it because uh, I think, and a lot of my friends do this, I think they do it because they think it's a, a good, good thing for society. I'm not going to say the big society, you know, but it's, it's that kind of, it, it's good for social living, that we offer ourselves to others to, to do good and, and, and things in the community. See, the pattern of the world, which Paul is kind of picking out here, is to do stuff to get stuff. Perhaps to keep ahead, to push ahead, you know, in the local kind of group of mums or whoever it may be. But what is the motive of the Christian here? And what is the power of the Christian, of offering ourselves as a living sacrifice? See, the power or the motive isn't from the outside now, it's from within. It's a joy. It's an inner love, if you like, that pulls us from the inside to, to offer ourselves. And notice how Paul has urged them. That is, he didn't command the church in Rome. I urge you, brothers. That's interesting because he has all the authority to command, yet he knows he does not need to. Rather, he only needs to urge. There's no obligation for the Christian to offer themselves as a living sacrifice. But we do, and not obey slavishly which would be conforming to the pattern of the world. If I, if I offer myself in obedience and, and do it slavishly, I'm saying, I'm looking for something in return. No, the Christian offers themselves in joy. Conforming, if you like, not to the pattern of the world, expecting something back, but conforming to the pattern of Christ, who offered himself as a sacrifice, a greater sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. So we offer ourselves in view of God's mercies. That is, it's not purely just an intellectual move, uh, looking for sort of gain and return. It's a matter of heart transformation that pulls us to offer ourselves. But it's interesting because Paul does make note of this. Um, He does say it begins with the mind. Hence why he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. He's saying all begins here. That's how we've been made. The pattern of this this world, he's saying, is you respond with your gut feeling. Oh, you you go with your urges, if you like. At any given moment, we respond as it suits us. But we all know, don't we, how that kind of, those kind of, I have an urge, I go for it. That gets us into trouble, doesn't it? Imagine a conversation at work, okay? 
With the person, imagine that person now who you probably find a little bit difficult, a little bit angular in the workplace. Imagine that conversation and you, you can feel the heat building up. Uh, you know you're getting a little bit cross, a little bit angry. Do you at that point then sort of take a step back and consider the bigger picture about work cohesion and, and you know, kind of how you're going to... No, you let yourself run, don't you? I do it all the time with my kids and my wife. You just do. <laughs> Often we just respond how we feel. But Paul says, no, that's the way of the world. That's their pattern. I feel this, I'm going to get angry. I'm going to bite their head off at work. But the pattern of the Christian life is renewed mind. Renewed through understanding and allowing, therefore, as a result, our hearts, our lives... To be conformed to God's pattern as revealed in his word. But why bother? Why not go along with everyone else? He simply says at the end, these two verses, very quickly. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. I've just summarised that by saying at the end that you'll be able to discern. I'll finish with this. I'm a big fan of sailing. I haven't sailed for years, you know, family and all that kind of stuff. I used to sail really big yachts and loved it. In sailing, you've got to know where you're going, haven't you? And you've got to be able to trust your means of getting there as well. You need to discern the best route. You've got to avoid those, you know, mid-Atlantic kind of certain latitudes. You get the doldrums. You've got to keep away from that. Southern Ocean, you want to kind of avoid completely because um, it's lethal. Um, you know, and all that kind of... Kind of thing. The same is true in life, and even more for the Christian life. Oh, we know where we're going if we trusted in Christ. We're bound for glory. We must trust our means of getting there. It's Christ and Christ alone. But we must be able to discern the best route. Oh, we've got to avoid those doldrums, those uh, those raging storms of life, as we best can. And if we go through them, we need to trust Christ in them. And we're to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. That is, we must employ all the equipment that God has given us to discern that best route. He's given us his word and his spirit. He's given us a church and we must not, using a sailing metaphor, I'm sorry here, we must not ignore the crew. They might know better than us at times and be able to point us back to the objective word of God. To plot a different route. In this life, as we offer ourselves as living sacrifice, we must not, if you like, ignore the pull of the world around us. We must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because, as the verse says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. That is, you will have discernment for the race ahead. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Live according to God's will. And that's the promise here is it will be for your good. And it will be very pleasing to God, to you. And there will be great joy in it too. Let's pray that we trust God's word in that. Let's pray together. Therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, 
This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, when we have conformed too much to the pattern of this world, please lovingly warn us Draw us now by your word and your spirit to offer ourselves, the whole of ourselves, as living sacrifices for you. I particularly pray, Heavenly Father, for those here who maybe are not brothers in the terms that are used here. They do not know the mercies of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would... uh, in line in their hearts, that they might look more to see that uh, this is not uh, a bunch of rules to keep. This is not a life which is dull and boring. This is a life that is good and pleasing. And in your eyes, is, is a great joy. Heavenly Father, I pray that all of us this week would be people transformed uh, in our minds by your word. And that you'd be very pleased and you'd be very honoured as we go out from this place. Amen. We're going to turn now in our our last song. If I can invite the musicians up. It's a a great old hymn. It's a long hymn. But it reminds us of, if you like, the path that, uh, that Jesus has taken then also. We are to take up our cross and follow him, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. Let's stand and sing, Jesus, I my cross have taken.